Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today, I have the distinguished honor of interviewing Dr. Todd Whitaker, who is one of the nation's leading authorities on staff motivation, teacher leadership, and principal effectiveness. effectiveness. He's the author of over 60 books, and I have to say, I met him for the first time about nine or 10 years ago. He was the keynote speaker in a conference called What Great Principles Do Differently. And from the moment he started talking, I knew I wanted to be just like him. <laughs> Todd Whitaker, who are you? Um, well, I really don't want people to find out because then we'll hurt our listenership. But uh, <laughs> anyhow, um, I, uh, there's somebody, a friend of mine, Greg Bagby, who's active on social media, always says, I want to be like you. And I always tell him to aim higher. So I'll go ahead and uh, share that with you if we could do that. So uh And, and the bad thing is we're in a little bit of trouble because I'm on here looking for wisdom, too. So both of us are in the same boat. So we'll see how it goes. But I am uh, honored to have a chance to visit with you and uh, uh, all the wonderful educators uh, that are hopefully tuned in and um, will tune in. And, and I, I mainly just want to thank them. You know, educators have literally been showing the world how to lead, uh, what to do. Um, we think of all the different people that are first responders that are significant. Well, in the last several years, educators have definitely been first responders too. And uh, I just appreciate for what they've done. They've made such a difference and they're so significant. And I always say, whatever our schools are like now or what our communities are going to be like in five years. And so it's a treat to connect and have a chance to interact and uh, work with people that I'm proud and hopefully uh, they feel this way to be able to call peers. And so that's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Todd. So um, let's start with the basics. Uh, can you walk us through your professional trajectory up to this point? Sure. Um, uh, now, understand I'm old because uh, when, when I went through uh, school, we didn't have history. They called it current events. But anyhow, <laughs> um, uh, I started and I was actually a uh, not a very good student, gra bottom, graduated the bottom third of my class in high school was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And I was, uh, interestingly, I was a business major and started law school at the University of Missouri. And um, I happened to be dating a girl whose dad was a high school basketball coach and whose mom was an educator. And I thought, you know what, that's really what I wanted to do. So I quit, I quit law school and got into education and uh, then uh, started teaching as a math teacher and basketball coach. And um, kind of went from there and then became a principal and basketball coach, boys and girls at a small school, and then had a chance to be a principal for many years in Jefferson City, Missouri, and then had the opportunity to go to Indiana State University because when I was in Jefferson City, I was very blessed. I had educators at my school almost every day of the year, believe it or not. And then they'd want me or me, myself and some of my teachers to come to their school and work with them, which was a, a blessing. But I also felt guilty being away from the school. and. Um, The superintendent would let us, and my wife used to present more than I do, did, and um, uh, and then we. I thought, what the heck, and moved to Indiana State just so I had more freedom of flexibility of schedule, and uh, have gone there. And then we moved back to Missouri seven years ago because my girls were teachers in Missouri, and uh, we wanted to have a chance to be with them. So that's kind of it, and um, 
started writing because I felt like I had some things I wanted to try to get out and uh, um, just have been blessed. And uh, sometimes I write because my head's going to explode because it isn't out there yet and I've got to get it out there. And other times I'll read things and this will sound so weird. I'll read something or I'll see someone or I hear someone and I, I, I think to myself, well, they're, they're, they're incorrect. They're not doing it correctly. And the problem is, isn't that they're saying it. The problem is other people then start doing it. And so that's part of it. And I, I write books, I think, and that, you know, the reader determines why I write books. You know, I, I don't do that, but the reader determines why I write books. And, but I try to write books so people know specifically what to do. I, I try not to write things in general. I try not to write things like to lead change, first get everybody on board, because the hard part is getting everybody on board. And so I teach you how to get everybody on board. And then I have great faith if you can do that, then you can lead change. It's, it's things like that. So, um, wow. Uh, that's kind of my vision. Where, I mean, two things. Where this sense of motivation comes from? And where do you get, like, every time I see you uh, present uh, or I see you in a podcast, you perspire this sense of confidence. Was it always like this? Um, what's interesting is I don't think I'm driven by confidence. I think I'm driven by insecurity. And, uh, you know, it, it, think of it this way in a school, it's as strange as it sounds many times, the worst teacher has more confidence than the best teacher. Because if you think about it, the worst teacher can go ahead and teach even when none of the kids are paying attention. And the great teacher needs all the kids paying attention. And when they're not paying attention, who does the great th teacher think the problem is? They think the problem's them. And so, and it's because it's really interesting and, and you're more like this and most of your audience is more like this than me, but the, the reason high achievers really can't have a huge level of confidence is because they compare themselves to perfection and average people compare everybody else to perfection. And so I, I really don't think it's confidence. That's nice of you to say that, um, you know, keep in mind, we're not in the same room, so you can't really know. And also I need to let our, our, our viewers know that, uh, you know, the camera adds 10 pounds and I got like seven cameras on me. So if you could do the math, that'd be helpful. <laughs> but, but I think some of it is trying things, helping people. And I really believe what we do works and it's just teaching other people how to do it. And then I see other people do it that are smarter than me and better than me, but they do it and it works for them too. And so that, I guess that's where, if there is any shred of confidence, it's from, uh, realizing we can teach people how to be effective and people can be effective. And so that's, that's it. And, and I think it's more of a drive than confidence. It's, it's the fact that I really care about education a lot and I want people to do it right. And if, and if you ever question people do the best they know how, all you have to do is think of classroom management mm. because in classroom management, classroom management selfish. If any of us could get the kids to behave better, we'd get the students to behave better. Nobody holds back on that. And so I think that that's it. And then realizing when we teach people how to do it, they, they try it and it works. And so that gives us confidence to help other people do that. But I'm, I'm, I'm truly not a confident person. I'm, I'm willing to be stupid and silly and, uh, because that's my personality. And, and well, I'll give you an example. It's funny. Some of y'all, some people know this. I swim every day. And I'm the only person in Columbia, Missouri that I know of that keeps their outdoor pool open all winter. <laughs> and, um, but what's interesting is the reason I swim 
and I like it so much is because I'm a horrible swimmer. The strange thing is the worse swimmer you are, the better exercise it is. Think about it. Michael Phelps can't burn a calorie swimming a lap. There's no way. And I am fighting for my life every single day. And it's really more determination, way much more so than it was than it is confidence. Uh, it really is just making myself do it. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I I used to run probably for 35 years. I ran and missed maybe 20 days over 35 years. And it isn't confidence. I'm not a particularly good runner. It really was just I decided I was going to set my ego aside and run regardless of what other people thought, regardless of what I look like, regardless of what other people look like. And I have, you know, even in exercise, I have two goals every day, exercise today, but be able to exercise tomorrow. I like that. And so um, I I really don't have confidence. And I'm sorry if it comes across, especially in a negative way. I think it's a... uh, I think it's just a belief that that right is right. I think maybe that's it more than common. Right is right. And in education, the people want to be great. That's why we got an education. Nobody wants to be average in education. Correct. Wow. And Todd, what did you what lessons did you bring from coaching into the principalship? I think every lesson in life is the same, believe it or not. Um one thing is confidence is the most valuable gift you can give and helping other people be com- confident. They, they do better. You know, it's really interesting because I also work with coaches, believe it or not, sports coaches. And, and we can think it's offense or defense or it's special teams or it's skills. And of course, all of those things have some factor, but it's really confidence. It's amazing how much when you see people improve, the improvement so often is in confidence. And I think, that realizing as a leader, as a coach, as a teacher, as a parent, as a friend, as a partner, we want to give people confidence. And um, uh, once they do it, they have a belief it can work. And many times it does. What's the what's the famous quote? My teacher thought I was smarter than I was. So I was. You know, and that, I think that's part of it. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I, I'm just here trying to to uh, process everything that you're saying. Um, uh, Todd, like in Back to the Future, if you could go back in time to any of the positions you have held, what is one thing that Todd of today would tell the Todd of then? Mm, good question. Probably, you know, it, it's funny that my girls and I have written a book called Your First Year for First Year Teachers. And because of that, I work with a lot of first year teachers. And one of the questions people ask me is, what one thing? And I'll be honest, I hate the question, what one thing? Because it's, it's the world is more complex than one thing. But if there's one thing I could tell my prior self, if I could tell anyone currently in prior is trust your gut. I really think your gut is right in, in general. Think about a first year teacher. And, you know, it, it, it's funny because teaching is the most isolated profession and you're never alone. But because of that, it's lonely. But you're never alone, but it's lonely. Being a principal is lonely, even if you're never alone. Can be. I don't mean it, it always because it isn't. A lot of times it's very joyous, but it can be very lonely, but you're not alone. But the teacher, think about this. Every new teacher got into education to make a significant impact. 
they wanted to be that memorable teacher. They wanted to be that teacher that people come back to. They wanted to be that teacher that, that students remember 15 years down the road or 10 years down the road or whatever it is. And one of the things I think that's most helpful to new teachers and anyone is trust your gut. For example, no new teacher got into education to yell. Amen. Nobody wants to be that yeller. As a matter of fact, you can think back in high school and you're thinking that yeller is the teacher everybody disliked. Every, no one liked them. And what happens as a new teacher is you start teaching. And particularly if you don't have the support and guidance level, you should. You, you get frustrated. You know, the kids misbehave. You're not sure what to do. It gets, it gets hard. It gets tiring at the end of the day. And a new teacher yells. And what happens is the first time a new teacher yells, potentially it works. And if you're just listening, not watching, I'm using air quotes and that it works. The first time you yell, potentially you get the kid's attention. Potentially they stop misbehaving. Potentially they improve their behavior at that moment. Now, it deteriorates relationships. It hurts. There's a negative. But if you trust your gut, you go home that day and you go, I don't want to be that teacher. I, I do not want to be that teacher. I don't want to be the one that does it. And if you trust your gut, the next day you don't yell. I don't mean you figured it out. You're still trying to sort through the myriad of choices there are besides yelling, but you're gonna, you made a commitment that you're not gonna yell. If you ignore your gut, the next day when the kids misbehave, you yell a little quicker. You yell a little louder. You yell a little more frequently. And of course, what happens is it's a diminishing return. Because then it doesn't work as well. It isn't quite as significant. You you feel worse. But as, if you start ignoring that thing of, I don't want to be this person, you become this person. If, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it, it, I think it's trusting your gut. And looking back sometimes is, sometimes in situations, we're lonely because there's people doing things that may not be the best things, the best choices, but they don't know they're not the best choices. And I'll give you the quickest example. One thing I always thought that was funny was people talk about a poor lecturer's classroom. And uh, what's interesting is people would always talk about, yeah, we need to reduce lecture. And I remember the first time I heard poor lecturer's classroom is like, oh no, we need to reduce poor. We don't need to, re we don't need to limit lecture. We need to limit ineffectiveness. Because the best teacher in a school may use lecture, but they're really good at it. And the worst teacher in a school may use lecture and they're really bad at it. But the, what happens is the best teacher, that if they're really significant at using lecture, because what happens that makes them so good is they're able to read the classroom, understand if kids are learning, they're able to bring in examples when they need to bring them in. I don't wanna reduce that. I don't wanna take that away at all. And the ineffective teacher that uses lecture, if we take away lecture, if we don't replace it with something better, potentially they're replacing lecture with something even worse than lecture because they don't have anything better. And I've learned with ineffective people, the way to get rid of, the way to have them reduce their ineffective practice is teach them a better practice. The teacher who yells, if I teach him or her a skill that would make classroom management better than yelling, they'll replace yelling in a second. And the poor lecturer who, who uses lecture ineffectively, if I teach them a better instructional practice than lecturing, they'll quit lecturing. 
if, if that makes any sense. But I don't want to just blanket remove lecture because then I take away maybe the best skill from the best teacher as well as the best skill from the worst teacher until I give them a better thing. I don't know. If, and it's, so it's relying on your instincts that, wait a minute, poor lecture's classroom doesn't make any sense. I, I don't even understand the problem's poor, the problem's not lecture. But we repeat the problem's lecture. Amen. Amen. It's, wow. it's, it's trusting your gut. And when you really think through things, it's like when people say you have to earn students' respect. I think that's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm. What are kids like the first day of school? What do they they're like? Good. They're, they're good. Why, yeah. Did you have to earn that? Absolutely not. I want to know what you do with it. but I don't Because I don't know how to earn people's respect. I'm not smart enough. But I know what to do with people's respect. I know how to build on it. I know how to nurture it. But I don't then because I don't feel the need to earn it. It allows me to try to be effective and appropriate from the very beginning versus trying to earn something. If that makes any sense. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think that um, um, the lecturing has a lot of stigma, and uh, I think you nailed it right. It's, it's the poor lecturing that we must uh, evolve from. Sure. Right. And. And that does, and you, you know, there may not be that many people that are exceptional at it, but the ones that are exceptional at it, why do we want to take that gift away from them? Because you know what that does? That reduces their confidence. Beautiful. Todd, reading books is such a luxury. Uh, you are the author of numerous books. So this might uh, be a complicated question. If you have to gift two books, one fiction and one nonfiction to a loved one, which one would those be? You mean like books I've read and things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that well, has inspired you, etc. I am going to disappoint your audience incredibly because I seldom read books. Pe people tell me I'm one of the few people they've known who's written more books than they've read. Uh, but if I was going to name a couple of books that are have significance to me, um, in terms of uh, kind of nonfiction professional, is uh, first break all the rules. That's to me, that's the best book I've ever read, but I've only read half a dozen. I mean, I'm, I'm really serious. I've only read half a dozen. And so, um, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote a book called Shifting the Monkey and somebody said, isn't that stealing off the book? Uh, the one minute manager, the monkeys, whatever. And of course, I, I didn't say anything, but I thought I haven't read that book because I haven't read any books. So, <laughs> so never mind. Um, then uh, I'm also a true crime fan. And so the uh, uh, the other nonfiction book, or you can decide exactly how to describe it. In Cold Blood is a big. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of that book. I think it's really well done. Uh, Truman Capote, you know, the way he writes it and whatever you think of it or controversy, I, I think it's good. Nonfiction, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is probably the first book I would give away or recommend. Again, it depends if they've read it, haven't read it, uh, that type of thing. But it's it's a very uh, significant thing to me personally. And so, um, and it's ironic because the, if you've seen the movie, the Capote, if you've seen the movie Capote, uh, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird is in there because Truman Capote and her were very good friends. Correct. Correct. Well, let me, let me ask you then, um, what great principles do differently. That book, uh, was really impactful in my professional trajectory. Um, Can you tell us about uh, how that book was born and um, 
you have had several editions and um, perhaps your your thoughts have uh, evolved with time. Uh, can you walk us through that um, seminal work? Um, now realize seminal is your word, not mine. So keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm kind of a hillbilly. I always say I'm from Missouri where Washington has an R. Um, <laughs> the My dissertation, which I happen to be sitting right here, is called Middle School Principles excuse me, middle school programs and climate, the principal's impact. And one of the things I did in, in, in Missouri, where I got my doctorate, I used all middle school principals in the state and I surveyed teachers in every school in Missouri as to how effective their principal was. And then I went to some of the schools with the most effective principals and I went to some of the schools with the least effective principals according to their teachers which honestly, teacher input is the best measure of principal effectiveness anyhow. And, um, and that's where this all stemmed from, was just what is it that great people do differently than other people? And, you know, and re it's really funny, the, that was the spinoff then for what great teachers do differently, but the other spinoff for what great teachers do differently was I was a terrible student in school. Terrible, terribly misbehaving student in school. I, I tell a joke, but... One time I brought a grade home, my dad, my grade card home, my dad was mad. My dad goes, Todd, all of your grades are horrible. I go, Dad, they're not all horrible. I got to be in reading. And he said, That's a B, you idiot. Anyhow, so <laughs> with that in mind, is when I was in school, I did not try very hard at all. I graduated in the bottom third of my class. I, I my GPA in college was terrible. To my junior year, I had to have a two six to get into the business program, and I didn't know, and I didn't have a two six. So one semester, I had to get a three eight to get my GPA up to a two six. And um, uh, so I was. But what's interesting is in my education career, I had three or four teachers all the years all through elementary, middle school, high school, college, that I actually paid attention, that I actually would try, that could get me to behave. And I and it's really funny. My stem was, wait a minute, what do they do differently? Because if they could handle me, and I'm not saying this in any way, but a sad way, if they could handle me, believe me, they could handle other people. And then when I was a principal, also in my school, I had teachers that could teach the kids that people said were unteachable. They could reach the kids that people said were unreachable. And it really was, what do they do differently? What are, what are these people doing differently that the other people aren't doing? And that's kind of where all this stemmed from. Most of my books are based on research. A lot of them, I just take the research out because I'm afraid people won't read the book. And, and what's interesting is it's sort of like, Do you have to earn people's respect? I don't think so. I think if I teach you something that will improve your practice, that's the respect. You know what I mean? I, it's funny. People, I, I'm very blessed. I get to speak a lot, especially to people that don't do background checks. But anyhow, um, I speak a lot and people will ask for an introduction. Well, I have one on my website and they can take it, but I truly don't care what they do because I say nobody cares about the preview. I only care about the movie. Amen. And it, it, it's a little bit, and this will probably go counterintuitive to some of our listeners, and it's okay. Uh, by the way, Counterintuitive is a show I thought for HGTV that they ought to do, a kitchen remodeling show called Counterintuitive. But um, what's interesting is if, 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 a, if a person is uh, uh, 
I, I'm in a principal preparation program and have been for years and people will get their first principal's job and they'll go, Todd, they wanted a woman and I'm a man. They wanted a man and I'm a woman. They wanted someone younger and I'm older. They wanted someone older. And I'm younger. They wanted internal. I'm external. And you know what I always say? All that matters till the first kid's sent to the office. Nobody cares anything about your background if you're effective. Nobody cares anything about your background if you're not effective. Nobody. People don't say, well, the superintendent wasn't a principal if they're phenomenal. They say the superintendent wasn't a principal because they're not phenomenal. And it making if they'd been a principal, they still wouldn't be phenomenal because typically it's just they don't have the skills. And, and, and in, in schools where principals are hiring assistants, many of them will put a committee together to, with the, to hire an assistant. And I said, the only reason you should ever put a committee together is if they'll help you make a better choice. Because it will not give the assistant more credibility once the school year starts. If you hire them in May, that'll give them credibility till school starts. But once school starts, it doesn't give anyone any credibility. It's just how you do. And no one on that committee will then say, no teacher on that committee, and I'm not belittling them, no teacher on that committee uh, in October when people are mad that that assistant principal isn't effective and isn't supporting them, no teacher on that committee will go, blame me. It's my fault. Blame me. Because as a principal, you know what I really need to do? Hire a really effective assistant principal. That's all that matters. Now, if the committee can help me do that, great. But if I, my only purpose is so they'll be more accepted, that's just a waste of time. Absolutely. Because if they're good, what they'll makes be a good. What makes a good assistant principal? Um, I think they have to like kids. It helps that they like adults. <laughs> I think it's somebody with really good judgment. I think there has to be some degree of loyalty, and I think they have to work hard. But if I can get someone who does that, I have no question they can become an outstanding principal. I never hire an assistant to have a good assistant. I hire a good assistant. I hire an assistant so that they can become a, a, a phenomenal principal. Amen. You know, Amen. Think, think about this. You know, the biggest disadvantage a principal has is if they've never worked for a great principal. Because now you have to figure it out on your own. One thing that we learned from uh, the research I did on what great principals do differently, and I've done numerous studies offshoots of that, and so it's been reinforced time and time again, is that great principals without exception have faculty meetings teachers look forward to and value. Pretty kind of scary self-check, isn't it? Great principals have faculty meetings teachers look forward to and value. Other principals either don't have faculty meetings or people don't look forward to and value it. What in, first of all, to a lot of principals, that's breaking news that it's even possible to have faculty meetings teachers look forward to and value. But if you've worked with a great principal that had faculty meetings teachers look forward to and value, do you see how much easier it'd be for you to have faculty meetings teachers look forward to and value? That doesn't mean you don't want to build your own personality, your own processes, your own things that fit this school. But in the meantime, I've got some things that work. And that's come when teachers, student teach, they you, we can only allow student teachers to student teach with exemplary teachers. If we give the, if we assign an average or below average teacher, a student teacher, potentially they ruin the people's career. Yeah. And that's our fault as the school leader. And it's, I don't, I don't, I don't even understand that stuff. And um, that's, and, and the same way, if you have new teachers and they get assigned mentors, so often mentors are assigned by convenience. 
Who's at the same grade level? Who is at the same race? Who's the same gender? Who's in the same hallway? Who has the same plan time? You know who I assign mentors? You know who I assign as mentors? Exceptional teachers. Because when I'm assigning a mentor, do you know what I'm telling that, that new teacher? Here is who I hope you become at the pinnacle of your career. And we really need, we really need exceptional models for people because that's going to be the best chance they have to be exceptional. Does the principal need to be the best teacher in the building? The principal needs to be exceptional in the identifying and cultivating talent. You know, one thing is, and this is so funny because sometimes people say this and they mean it. Sometimes people say it and they're trying to be modest, you know, but it's a humble brag and it's okay. People say, I only hire people better than me. If you're exceptional at, if you're exceptional at hiring outstanding people, none of them are better than you because that's a gift. They could be better at you at technology. They could be better at you at teaching math. They could be better than you at certain things. But understand, if you can identify and recruit and attract exceptional people, none of those people are better than you because think that there is no gift more ultimate than that gift, if that makes sense. Yes. yes. And that doesn't mean they're not better than you at specific things because I'm, I'm hoping they are. But, that does, but in general, they're not better than you because that is such a gift to be able to have and use. Beautiful. Wow. Todd, let me ask you, uh, who is or who are your biggest influences? Um, you mean besides you or including? <laughs> <laughs> um, Jerry Valentine, who was my doctoral advisor at the University of Missouri and was a principal at a very young age and had different ways of thinking of the principalship than the average people do. Um, I think was very helpful for that. Probably my wife is a, my wife's an exceptional principal and teacher. I mean, truly gifted, exceptional. Probably the other people that were the biggest influences were the best teachers in my school at every school I was at. Because what I've learned is if I can teach my, if I can treat my teachers like my best teacher treats their students, I can do anything. And that's where kind of the superstars backgrounds, mediocres comes from is that, In every school, I'm writing a book called How to Get All Teachers to Be Like the Best Teachers, because in my mind, that's the only uh, solution. Because in every school, anywhere in the world, you, if you have at least one outstanding teacher, you have at least one teacher that's cracked the Da Vinci Code. So I don't need to innovate. I need to replicate. Innovating is hard. Replicating is hard, but not as hard as innovating. And, um, and so as a leader... I would always go to my best teachers and ask what I should do because you now it has to be superstars. And the reason you can always hire superstars because average principals don't want them in your school because you know they know. You know they know you're average. So instead, I go to them for guidance and advice all the time. What should I do here? How should I handle it? After, before faculty meetings, I'm going, I'm going to do these three things. Is this going to offend anyone? Is this going to upset people or hurt people's feelings? Is this going to be perceived in a negative fashion? After faculty meetings, I check with my best people and go, how did you think this went? Did this go across? Is there anyone I need to apologize to? Do I need to explain more clearly? Um, because your superstars always want you to succeed because their vision is so big. They know if the principal's not successful, the school can't be successful. 
And there are other people that want you to succeed when they agree with you. When you agree with them. Superstars want you to succeed because they know that's what's needed for the students to be as successful as possible. And so they're always on your side. And they're never part of the rumor mill. Yes. Wow. Wow. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm so uh, blessed that you're taking this time to answer this question. Um, all of us at some point uh, believe that we might not be good enough or right. um, and they call it imposter syndrome. How do you address this? Um, well, coincidentally, I had just tweeted recently, those people who think they have imposter syndrome probably shouldn't. And many people who don't think they have imposter syndrome probably should. Mm. Because high achievers are the most likely people to have imposter syndrome because they compare themselves to perfection. So if you feel like, if you're looking at perfection, which is what high achievers compare themselves to, leading high achievers is the biggest key to being an effective leader. Mm. And so understand when you make a decision, you're always reflecting, was that the best decision? Did, did that, was that the right thing for everyone? Did, was I inclusive with everyone? Did I leave people out? Did I? And so you're going to always have, are, are likely to have imposter syndrome where you're thinking, I, I, you know, I, did they do this right? Did I do this correctly? So that is something, but, but that's a come when I give you the gift of confidence, you're less likely to at least you may have imposter syndrome, but you're less likely to hold it, have it hold you back. And, but think about how many people, you know, I, I have a friend of mine who I say, I've never seen anybody be wrong so often and never lose confidence. And he would be much better off with imposter syndrome. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Let's let's talk about uh, productivity, right? Uh, the, what happens behind the scenes? This looks different for different people. How do you get organized? I mean, you teach, you lecture, you're traveling, you're tweeting, you're everywhere, uh, and I still see that you run with your children. Uh, and that you probably have a very fructiferous life. Uh, what advice do you have? Um, well, for me, the teaching, tweeting, speaking overlap. If you've read any of my books, they're me speaking. Now, that doesn't mean they're good because I could also be speaking incorrectly and I don't have noun verb agreement and all this kind of stuff. And I think funner should be a word, but um, they're, they're the same. And it's kind of like I'm getting ready to write what great teachers do different. I mean, uh, excuse me, I apologize. I'm getting ready to write how to get all teachers to be like the best teachers because I've been presenting on it for two years. So in my mind, it is clear as a bell. And I typically, this sounds embarrassing to say, and you'll feel like it. I write books in two weeks, start to finish but I've already thought through them. And all I'm doing is writing my thinking process, if this makes any sense. Yes. And so that allows me to be efficient. I'm blessed that way. Um, and I do, I love being with my kids. Uh, three of my kids I really like, and um, that's out of three. And so, um, and so it's just, and, and two, and you know, and all three of them are, have some connection to education. Um, And so that's fun because we have that kind of supper table talk and, 
And all of us really feel, I feel like my job is to defend, defend people who can't be defended, to protect people that can't be protected. Um, I've, and, and it's to defend educators. I mean, we're in a demonization of teachers world. This is sickening. And I feel like that's part of my job because what happens right now, we have so few spokespeople to stand up for what's right, to, to share. There aren't schools with kitty litter. It's made up. That's a lie. There are people who are just repeating as a lie and that some of them are elected officials. And what happens is when people that are in roles like that lie, people think it's the truth. And so I, I feel like that's part of my role. My part of my role is to, to help legislators understand how to do things correctly, how significant they can be, how this is so damaging, this is so hurtful to people. Um, and once people understand it, it's shocking how many times they change. But we've got to teach them how to do it. We can't mandate effectiveness. We have to teach effectiveness. And we try mandating. You know, think about this. I always ask educators, you ever been told to raise your test scores? Well, every, every educator's told them. And I said, was it good you were told? Because how many of you have been holding back on that? <laughs> you know, how many of you keep a little slack on the line when it comes to your test scores? Nobody does. And what happens is when I tell you to raise your test scores instead of teaching you to raise your test scores, do you know what you should be aware of? You should be aware that I don't know how. Because if I knew how I'd be teaching you, I wouldn't be telling you. I don't tell you to manage your classroom. I teach you to manage your classroom. And then once as a leader, once I teach you how to manage your classroom, now I know you know how to manage your classroom. So if you're not doing it now, because I, I always say the first thing we have to sort out with people who aren't doing the right thing, are they ignorant or insubordinate? We almost always think they're insubordinate. They're almost always ignorant. And ignorant doesn't mean unintelligent. It, I, ignorant means they didn't even know they were doing wrong. The people that are, many of the people that are repeating their kitty litter are in schools and classrooms, they think they are. They didn't know there aren't. And they go, how do you get so confident there aren't? And I go, because some of the nonsensical people that are on TV and on the internet would be at the school broadcasting if they had kitty litter there. Since they're not there broadcasting, it's really not there. Mm -hmm. And right. um, but until you teach people, they don't they don't know. It's like they, they you hear people say all the time, I have to earn kids respect. And you don't. You, you, it's a gift. And once you think about it, you realize that's not true. It, it isn't true. People talk about participation trophies. And I say, and it's funny, they talk about that causes all the problem in the world. Participation trophy. I work with coaches. And you know what I teach coaches and they talk about, they go, I can't motivate the players because they've gotten participation trophies. You know what I tell them? So did the team that beat you. They all got participation trophies too. And the team that beat you before that also all got participation trophies. And the team you're playing Saturday night, they got participation trophies too. So you're looking for excuses or solutions. And the problems, sorry, my phone's going That's off okay. with potential spam, and I can take it and we can all hear. Um, I'm hoping, is the spam mean they're going to sell me that spam because I really like it? It's delicious. It's possible. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and what's interesting is if you think about it, when we, re as a leader, when we repeat things like participation trophies, you know, they don't earn them. We always earn things when we were little. You know, we had to earn them. I, you know what I tell people? I go, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. When I was two years old, I had to mow the neighbor's lawn before I could have supper. You know, that's a come they call me no toast Todd because I was two years old. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way it's ever worked. People go, you know, when we got it at school, we used to get it twice as bad at home. Because of that, we were never problems. Sure. We didn't have jails then, did we? Come on. Let's be real. And I always want us to think this. How many of us 
in our schools and classrooms today, how many of us have at least one student, at least one, that may have been a little better off if they've ever gotten a participation trophy? And I'd like us to think about the best, most well-rounded kid in our school, in our classrooms, the best, most well-rounded student, go into their bedroom. What's it full of? Participation trophies. So can we shut up about fake things like kitty litter and participation trophies and actually look for real solutions? Because in all of our schools and classrooms, almost all of us have at least one student that struggles socially, emotionally, behaviorally, academically. And is that because they've gotten too many participation trophies? Is that because they've pam been pampered and spoiled too much in their life? Is that what's caused that? So let's shut up about things that are incidental and let's look at things that are real problems so we can come up with real solutions. And it isn't participation trophies, it's whatever the next version of participation trophies is. And can I tell you a little secret? The best teacher in a school never talks about participation trophies. And the worst teachers talk about them all the time and they hang around with other people who wanna blame participation trophies, flexible seating, society today, Miley Cyrus. I mean, they wanna blame anything. And when we do that, what happens is we never move forward and we're comfortable staying where we are. But highly effective people are always going, wait a minute, it can't be participation trophies because we have better teachers and worse teachers in the school. And wouldn't they all be the same if participation trophies was the driving force? But instead, the quality of the teacher is the driving force. And we can look at any school in any community and we realize that's what it is. You have great parents, you have parents that are struggle. Both of their kids have gotten participation trophies. The great people don't give away the problem to fake things. They don't give away the power to fake things. They realize they really are the variable that can determine the significance and improvement or lack thereof within a community, within a classroom, within a home and within a school. And if we think about it for two seconds, we realize it's embarrassing that we've ever thought these fake things were the real problem. It's, it's always people, it's never programs. It's never gonna be programs, it's always gonna be people. Think about this. When we went into the pandemic and we all went virtual overnight, literally everybody went virtual, no, no practice. And what made it so hard was we didn't have a dress rehearsal. We just had opening night. <laughs> you yes. didn't get to practice at all. If you could have practiced for a week, your school would have been different, wouldn't it? But, but we couldn't. That's nobody's fault. We just couldn't. But in every school, how, how many of you could name three teachers you knew were going to figure it out? And how many of you could name three teachers you knew were never going to figure it out? And since we've come back in person, how many realize the three teachers that couldn't figure out virtual have never figured out in person either? Because it's the exact same skill set. And we have to help people build that skill set. We have to get attract people with that skill set. And we work on it because that really is, it's always the teacher. It's never the program. It's always the principal. It's never the school. It is always the person. It's not the programs within that there. And that's what comes things like participation trophies and everything are really just pretend things we just make up. Hey, man. Wow. Uh, Todd, um, wow. 
Um, feel free to edit out any of the stupid stuff that I'm doing. No, no, no. Actually, I, 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 have to transcribe this because I, I need to share this with with many people. I, such, such, so impactful, right? It's never programs. We invest so much money in 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 silly stuff um instead of what really matters is the professional learning of the teacher so uh, as they are the the conduit uh for good education so uh todd in in terms of of your calendar um logistics how the heck do you get organized um well i'm blessed that i still use the exact same calendar of when i was a principal Take a look at this modern beast right here. Yeah, um, I'm fairly efficient. I'm, I'm an efficient thinker. And so that's helpful. And I don't have any people. Um, so if you contact me about speaking, it's you're stuck with me. I'm sorry to hear that. But that allows me to handle people with more care, handle people with more concern, uh, be more sensitive in terms of uh, what I can do or not. The same way when I was a principal, because I, I was a high school principal at 25. And the same thing when I was a principal, I'd find myself not going in classrooms. And I thought, I've got to go in classrooms. Well, it's because you get busy, you get caught up. So what I learned on my calendar is every Monday, I would open up my calendar and I would choose 20 to 45 minutes a day. And I'd write down parts of the school to be in. Not to trick anyone, it's to make myself see the whole school at various times during the day. So like my last school was a middle school. And uh, I would write 9 to 9.30, visit 6th grade wing. And on Tuesday, I might put 1 to 1.40, visit 7th grade wing. And on Wednesday, I would say such and such, visit 8th grade wing. Then on Thursday, visit exploratory wing. And then I would start over again, but I'd choose a different time to visit 6th grade wing and a different time to so that I could be in all classrooms on a regular basis. And by putting it in my calendar, it forced me to do it. Because what it, you know, our, our, in education, time and our calendar drives our lives. So if it's down there, I do it. If it's not down there, I may or may not do it. And that's kind of that is, it was kind of forcing myself. It's like the exercise thing. It's kind of forcing myself to do it before I come up with an excuse not to do it. I see. So let's talk about exercise. Is that is that uh, um, what you do for fun? Um, my fun is when I'm done. But yes, uh, I do. I love I, I ran for. I'm trying to think of how many years this is embarrassing and it'll date me, but I ran uh, from starting July 5th, 1981. I started running from that day and I would go three years without missing a single day. And if I ever missed, it was either very sick or something happened because I don't like to make excuses. And it's because it's funny as a principal, I would run at 5:15 every morning. It's mm. 12 months a year. And the, and the reason is, it's really funny. If I go out and I run in the rain or snow or cold, that angry parent doesn't seem like anything. Wow. You know, yeah. and I don't mean that I belittle them. I'm just talking about they, it doesn't get my blood pressure up. It doesn't bother me compared to what I was doing. It seems so insignificant. And um, that's kind of where that comes from. And it, I am a wound person, which is this is me. I don't drink caffeine. I don't drink caffeine. I exercise about an hour and a half every morning and just to get this calm. So that's part of my nature, too. Um, and I like action, which is why I like being a principal. Yes. You know. And what you do for after you're done exercising? Um, what What do you do for fun? 
I'm a big sports person. I love watching sports. Um, my family and I are, we're loyal people. I know it sounds really weird. We're loyal. A team doesn't have to win. I, it doesn't have to, you know, uh, for 22 years, we had uh, season tickets at Indiana State University basketball. And uh, just to help you know, this year they won 20 games and it's the third time they've won since 20 games since 1979. And I'd go to practice and I'd travel with the team and I really enjoyed that. And uh, just watching the team develop and what the coaches do and my kids do too. And at one time uh, it was a lean year, but I got an award at the university and the basketball coach was the person who presented the award. It's not about sports, but it was just, they, they knew I was friends with the basketball coach and liked basketball. And one of the things he said is he goes, Todd's the only person I know that for his wedding anniversary takes his wife to basketball practice. And she's the only person I know who liked it. And so we go to the basketball games and football games and, and my family, we're just diehard loyalists. Now I'm at university of Missouri, but I went to university of Missouri. And so, um, uh, we're just diehard loyal people. That's just what we like to do. We, we have friends. We enjoy doing things with friends. And, uh, but I always, what is it is, uh, uh, um, uh, family is first and everything else is everything else. And I'm, I, I'm very, I admire that. Very, very and, way. And um, transitioning from being a school principal, I'm assuming a presenter, and becoming a college professor, uh, for people who aspire to do something like that, uh, what recommendations do you have? Well, always keep in mind, if I can do it, anyone can do it. So that in of itself is helpful. Somebody goes, you've written so many books. And I said, yeah, they'll publish anything nowadays. So, so keep that in mind. Um, I was a principal and I don't know what we, because we talked a little bit before we went on air and I don't want to repeat, but when I was a principal, I would have visitors to my school who would come to my school from all over the world every day. And then they'd want me to go and work with their school. So that started the natural transitioning of presenting. And, um, and my superintendent was supportive. So they'd allow me to do this, but I felt guilty. And so I thought, well, if I was a universe, if I was a college professor, I would still have a an income and a, a way of living, but I have more flexibility and schedule. So I, I, I did that. And that's kind of where that started. And, um, and they supplement each other. Cause I think that then I am in school so often I can hopefully bring stuff back to the students. Uh, I see things so much cause I've directed so many doctoral dissertations. I told my wife the other day, I go, honey, I think like a dissertation, which is why I don't have any friends. And she said, Todd, that's not why you don't have any friends. So anyhow, that was hurtful. Um, but it's thinking through that way and exploring areas that we need to explore that are current and then sharing that information. Um, so everything kind of goes together that way, if that makes any sense. It does. You know, and the pandemic was a terrible thing for the world and country. And, and we so many lost lives and so many people that have suffered. And But uh, it also then introduced Zoom. I, I've been on Zoom before, but that allows me to present to places I couldn't reach otherwise. Last year, I did a thing with 100,000 people around the world, and I wouldn't have been able to do that on Zoom. And um, without Zoom, you wouldn't have been able to do that. And you can be uh, reach, reach opportunities that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And I tell people I'm very blessed. My personality is just as annoying on Zoom as it is in person. So uh, one way or the other. Um, and 
you know, it's kind of those things have all just kind of worked together and combination. Beautiful. And then uh, my final question will be um, your presence in, in on, on Twitter and social media. Uh, many of my peers, uh, principals, uh, often don't get in social media because they're afraid they're going to tweet the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. Uh, what advice do you have? Well, I would encourage you to people to be on Twitter, whether they tweet or not, you know, because you can, it's really who you follow is part of it. And the, the beautiful part about Twitter is the knowledge of one becomes the knowledge of all. And nobody ever steals a worse idea. So, so you don't hear me do something and you're going, I don't think that'll work as well as what I do. I'm going to give it a try. You never do that. And, and it allows outstanding people to find other outstanding people. And then you're not lonely. You're not as alone. You know, I, I tell teachers this all the time. How many of you would like to be happy and perky going to work every day? Well, everybody would. How many of you work with some people that aren't happy and perky going to work every day? Well, if those are your peers, you're going to become like them. So you need to find peers that you want to be like, or, or, or maybe are like you. I don't mean it's just, you know, it, it's, and then you have a chance to steal ideas from each other all the time. So I would really encourage that because I think it's 24-7 unlimited learning and it's free. Beautiful. Todd, this has been such a great conversation. Any last thoughts you would like to share with the listeners and viewers of the show? Yes, I would like to thank them. And you, I'd like to thank you. It, it really is. And I started this way, but I, I don't know how much I don't know how much people believe it. What? educators do makes a difference. We're the best hope that there is. We really are. Our job is not to reflect society. Our job is to cultivate society. And our jobs are really hard because they're really significant. I always say the best thing about teaching is it matters. The hardest thing about teaching is it matters every day. But aren't you glad you have a job that matters? Because there's a whole bunch of jobs that don't matter. And I'm glad the people that want to make a difference are in education. And I'm glad a lot of the people that don't want to make a difference are in something else. And that's the way it should be. We don't have jobs that other people come back to us 15 years later and talk about a significant thing that happened, a fun thing that happened, a different thing that happened. You know, I want you to think about this. How many of you could name your kindergarten teacher? How many of you can name your first grade teacher? How many can name your second grade teacher? How many can name your third grade teacher? How many can rename your fourth grade teacher? But how many of us can't even name and list almost any other profession of anybody we interact with? That's how important education is. And it's such a blessing to hopefully consider this my peer group. Wow. This is exactly who I've wanted as my peer group my whole life. It's just people that devote their life to trying to make a difference and help others. And that's what I'd like to say. I just, I thank them so much. I'm nobody. If I can ever help you, give me a holler. My website's toddwhitaker.com. On Twitter, I'm at Todd Whitaker. I don't have any people. Our jobs are lonely. And if you ever just want to talk to somebody about what's going on, I'd be happy to visit with any of you anytime. I do it every single day. And so um, if I can ever help anybody, give, them a, give me a holler. But I just appreciate what you do. It makes such a difference. And I appreciate the opportunity to link up with you, an outstanding educational leader, and just have the chance to connect and, and uh, hopefully share things of at least some value to other people. It's a treat. Lots of value. I am so inspired. I can't wait to go upstairs and tell my wife and my children about what I learned from you today. Todd, thank you so much. My pleasure.
it's been a gift for me more than it's a gift for the audience. Trust me. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Eparim Martinez. Chulu. And I love that production. Chulu out.